0: grew up in suburbia. Across the road from our home, about a hundred yards away, was a grocery store. A not unfamiliar store in terms of our communities in those days. No larger, no smaller than anything else. It was a rather interesting place because it was open from 8.30 in the morning till 6 o'clock at night, six days a week. If you didn't buy what you needed during those hours, there was a little convenience store a few more blocks away where you could go and maybe buy something on Sunday, as was needed. There wasn't that much in the way of the stores around to choose from. There was basically one grocery store we could shop at. And I can remember standing in that store, I can remember where the bread was kept, as you walked in the door, it was on the right-hand wall, on, on the left-hand wall rather, close to the window. And the bread was simply one of two colors, white or brown, and it wasn't a whole wheat. And you could buy a whole loaf, or you could buy half a loaf. And the bread arrived every day. And what was not sold one day got returned to the bakery The next day, there was one refrigerator case in the uh, store in which butter, cheese, and, you know, the hams and the bacons and sausages and so forth, the processed meats, were kept. Anything that was not tinned or canned, if you wish to use that term, or in a bottle already, was actually weighed out by the staff on a scale. And it was put into a plain brown manila bag, such as you find in health food stores today. Must be something healthy about them. (laughs) And there was no choice. There was only one butter from the local butter manufacturer. There was only one type of bread from one baker. And so it was throughout the store. If you wanted to buy vegetables, a few uh, blocks down the road we had what we called a greengrocer. But we never really frequented that store because most of the vegetables we ate came out of our own garden. And the fruit that we ate would have come off the trees in the back garden Or we as young children were sent out to the orchards on the outskirts of town to pick up or pick fruit as the case may be. Meat came from a butcher's shop right next door to the greengrocer. And you got what you asked for off the carcass that the butcher was carving up at that particular time. And it was very simple. There was not much choice. It was what was in season, or you went with that. There wasn't much trade in terms of fresh produce as we have today. And so we had, uh, I don't think I suffered in terms of my life. I grew up, any, any health problems I had in terms of my life were not food related. They were probably related to other aspects of our life, and not the foodstuffs that we were able to consume. Uh, basically, apart from a few problems here and there, I've had what most people consider to be a relatively healthy life, and uh, for which I'm very, very grateful. And so we uh, ate what was available. And it seemed to provide a reasonable standard of nutritional benefit to us as people, unclean foods aside. But I'd like you to consider that to what you and I can experience today. Take yourself into the largest supermarket you can think of. So we're not talking about Trader Joe's. We're not talking about a place... It sells its own products and its own branded products. Take yourself into a real supermarket. Those of you who go to France, think of Carrefour's and some of their hyper stores in which food and various other things are uh, sold together. And you can get a pretty good workout walking around the store trying to find what you're looking for. The same in, in various other parts of the world. They're called superstores or hypermarkets. Stand in those stores and consider the choice that is available to you today. Bread comes from a, probably a dozen or more different manufacturers, in every shape, flavor, grain possible to be thought of. You can stand there scratching your head thinking, what would I really like to eat? Milk. Milk used to be delivered to our front door every morning. Provided we put the bottles out for the milkman to collect. And he knew how many bottles of milk we needed. But today, milk comes in a variety of forms with each variety being duplicated as to whether it is organic or unorganic. Little of any food available today in the supermarket is not prepackaged. Much of it is in fact preprocessed, so that it requires very little or very minimal preparation or cooking by the purchaser. The range of choice is so great that you could waste your time trying to work out what you're going to buy. And if you weren't careful, you could find yourself walking out of a supermarket today with a basket full or a trolley full of goods, which really are not really foods at all. You might call them non-foods. And let's not forget the deli counter where you can buy the equivalent of fast foods as well. With all of the attendant problems that go with those. So people today can spend their money buying non-food and suffer from malnutrition. One of the causes of obesity is not only the abundance of food available within the Western world and especially within this nation but also the way in which it is pre-prepared for the consumer. People have plenty, but in many cases, they're injuring themselves or harming themselves as they don't know how to choose wisely with the food they choose for themselves. So we've had movements to remove MSG from food, trans fats from foods, And so forth, that are part of the food chain in our societies. Of course, we still have the problems of the use of hormones and the preparation of food, the use of genetically modified uh, uh, seeds and grains. So, there are all sorts of things that are problematic. We have the government involve itself and tell us what should be our recommended daily allowance. And they have us label, they have producers label the foodstuffs so that you can know what's in it. But the more the government regulates it, the harder it becomes to read. To be able to work out what is in fact in the food that you're producing. Now, I'm not wanting to talk about foodstuffs today. In terms of the supermarket, I think you can appreciate the problems that exist in our society today in terms of what is called food. You may well remember the case of a man who went on a McDonald's diet in 2004 and ate nothing but what came out of a McDonald's for 30 days and videotaped it. And those people who saw the documentary afterwards could see this guy literally dying before their eyes. As he devoured non-food. Created quite a stir at that period of time. But think of that in terms of another situation. Think of it in terms of God's Word the food that we are to take these days. I don't want to talk about the edible food, but I want to talk about the food that is most essential to you and me today. The food which is contained and provided for us from God's Word. In fact, I can't help but forget that The sermon, the scripture I'm going to use and focus on most of all was, in fact, the scripture that was the focus of my very first sermonette in 1971. I didn't go over time, Mr. Ames. In fact, the elder who was with me and evaluated me afterwards said, well, you did a pretty good job. And he said, I thought you were going to run out of anything to talk about. And so he was rather relieved that I got through the uh, 12, 13 minutes at that point in time. But uh, it's interesting. A long time has gone from 1971 to the present time. A lot of study of God's Word. Jesus recorded a comment in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, where Matthew records for us Jesus' words when he said, Blessed are those who hunger "...and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, or they will be satisfied." It's not just a matter of having a full stomach, it's a matter of being satisfied by it. I've seen children in Africa who possibly have a full stomach. But you look at the shape of their bones, and you look at the distension of their their stomach and you realize that child has never been satisfied. That child was suffering from rickets because it was suffering from malnutrition. And it's possible in this day and age for people to suffer from spiritual malnutrition. Just as well, just as easy as it is for people to be satisfied, to be nourished, to be strengthened by it. It's very easy to focus on the hungry and thirsting, and the need for that, to have an appetite for the spiritual food. But to do that focuses on, you might say, a mechanical part of it. I want to focus on the other aspect of the instruction that Christ gave. What the purpose of the hungering and thirsting is for. What we are supposed to be seeking for as the called ones of God, as God's children. What is it that our Father in heaven, the Son, want us to be focusing upon? Much food exists today in terms of a Bible. Throw your mind back if you can to the time of William Tyndall. When the Bible was not available to people, it was kept in churches. Prior to Tyndall, it was in Latin. And unless you spoke Latin, you couldn't read it. And Tyndall looked forward to the time when the plowboy following the oxen could read the Bible. It took many centuries to accomplish. Probably the early part of the 20th century was the earliest that that really was fully accomplished. But we've gone beyond that today, haven't we? Because we just don't have one Bible. We have numerous Bibles. We just don't have one commentary on the Bible. We have numerous commentaries on the Bible. And it's compounded because we have a thing called the Internet. And we have access to everybody's opinion about what the Bible really says. And I think what we have to do is we have to stop and consider and ask, what's the content of what is being presented to me? Or what someone would like me to read? What's the end result of consuming it? Where does it lead me? So, the world is a dramatically changed world, even from the early part of the 20th century. It is compounded, it is got, it developed almost at a linear rate over the last hundred years in terms of what is available in terms of the Bible, what is available as potential food that you could consider using for your Bible study. How do you evaluate it? Well, Jesus Christ gives us a very important answer to that. So we need to examine our spiritual diet in terms of what we are ingesting, what we are taking in. Isaiah was inspired to write along exactly the same lines as Jesus was speaking here. Not surprising, seeing Jesus as the Word was the one who inspired Isaiah. So you might say this is a continuing focus of the God family. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. Isaiah 55 and verse 1, he said, "Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Okay, so this is not like a great store that exists at the present time that sells stuff at such high cost that everyone refers to it as whole paycheck. What we're being offered is gratis. We're not having to pay for it in terms of laying out cash, so to speak. He said, yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In verse 2 he said, why do you spend money for what is not bread? Or why do you give out your silver, is what the Hebrew says, or today we might say, why do you run your plastic for that which is not bread? There's no value to it. And your wages for that which does not satisfy... Listen carefully to me, the Eternal says, and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. It is not just talking about a plate piled so high that you can't eat it without great discomfort. Isaiah is really talking about what is the choicest pieces available. He's talking about the the quality of what is available to us, what the eternal is offering us in terms of quality. He said, Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, And the nation and nations who do not know you shall run to you because the Eternal your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In other words, if we were to eat of the right things, the Eternal is going to bless that food intake. And the end result is he does a work. He does a very great work. And so he talks about what we should be consuming, and it's free of charge, which is incredible. So Matthew tells us, Matthew tells us that we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Matthew uses the term righteousness frequently in this chapter, in chapter 5 and the next chapter, chapters 5 and 6. In fact, if one reads through Matthew, you find that Matthew uses the term righteousness more than any of the other Gospels put together. It's an element for the eternal inspired Matthew to focus on in terms of Jesus Christ's teachings. And so we find that righteousness is a key to the entry into the kingdom of God. We find in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, we are told to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all of the natural human needs will be added to us. Our Father will take care of us in a very great way. We find as well that it's used in terms of John the Baptist. And his work. And so we find uh, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15 and Matthew chapter 21 and verse 32, Matthew is inspired to include comments and evaluations about John the Baptist and righteousness. So righteousness is a word that defines what is right and just in our Father's sight as well as defining a right relationship and right actions. So it covers, you might say, a range of right situations. Right relationship, right actions. What is just and right in our Father's sight? Matthew uses that concept of a right relationship here in relation to humans as a requirement for the kingdom of God. And uh, we have, from our father's perspective, perspective, it is the fulfillment of his plan and purpose for humanity. Very important for us to realize. If we take the two great commandments... Love of our Lord our God with all our heart, with all our strength, and all our mind, and the love of our neighbor as ourselves, they are part of God's righteousness. How God wants us to relate to Him and to one another. And so it's very important for us to uh, appreciate. So, righteousness, when it talks about righteousness in chapter 5 and verse 6, it relates to a relationship that is right with God and with our fellow human beings. It conforms to His standard. It is in fact a reflection of our Father's character so that we can truly love one another and have the proper relationships that the God family desires us to have. That's the focus of righteousness. We are to be righteous... Because he is righteous, as we'll see in a moment. Righteousness is a quality of our Father. And we are to take on those qualities of our Father. In other words, our hungering and thirsting is to produce God-like character within our lives. There's an end result. The hungering and thirsting is to produce a God-like character within our lives. If it's not producing that within our lives, if it's creating contention, if it's creating turmoil, it's not the right food. It may be a toxic food, or it may be a non-food, or maybe it's too much fast food. It is being harmful to our body. It involves action on our part. And not just action, but a specific standard of action. Matthew chapter 6 talks about when we do our charity or our alms before men. A word that is very closely related to this righteousness that is referred to in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 6, rather. I'd like to go back to Isaiah, though. Isaiah chapter 42, and verses 5 through 7, because this ties into what we're reading here in Matthew. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 through 7. It tells us, Thus saith God the Eternal, Who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and which comes, and that which comes from it. So in other words, the creator of food, the provider of food, who gives breath to his people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Verse six, he said, I the eternal have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring up prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And so in verse 6 he says, I have called you in righteousness. The purpose of my calling you is based on righteousness. And where does it end up? It ends up, with us being a light to the people around us, to those who do not know God, to the other nations. I find it interesting that having finished the Beatitudes, Jesus Christ goes on and talks about us being what? A light. And what is the purpose of us being a light? It's part of the role of preaching the gospel To a very sick and dying world. A world that desperately needs it. The Eternal said, I've called you in righteousness. That's the purpose, that's the way in which I've called you, and that is the purpose, that is the goal I want you to establish within your life. Focus within your life. Form of righteousness which builds the right relationship with our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another, so that we can accomplish what it is that He desires us to have. So we're called in righteousness for our Father's ultimate righteous purpose, preaching the gospel to this world, to be a light to this world. I was rather intrigued because I was given a paper recently by someone who basically said, well, we don't have to preach the gospel. But that seems the most bizarre thing possible. Because if we're supposed to be a light to the world, that means we're involved in preaching the gospel. And it doesn't matter how much money is involved in it. My life is supposed to be involved in Preaching the gospel individually and collectively. It's supposed to be my whole being, the whole purpose of my being to harmonize my goals and my ambitions with my Father's goals and ambitions. The Apostle Peter also comments about this in terms of our calling. Our righteous calling as well. Let's turn to First Peter chapter 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 18. Where he talks about our calling. This is a section we'll often read around the Passover time. Because it talks about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In verse 18 he says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold... From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Okay, so our life prior to being called was, he said, aimless. It had no real goal. Oh, it may have been to collect as much money and as much assets and, and uh, possessions as you possibly could. But the eternal doesn't consider that to be anything. That's aimless. He can blow on it and it will go to pieces means nothing to be eternal. He said that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so he said, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. The end result of our calling is love for one another, concern for one another. And we heard in the announcements today that the drums have been overwhelmed by the outpouring of love. That's godly. That's right. That's the way it should be. We should compare, we should be concerned for one another in that way. He goes on and talks about um, chapter 1, let's drop down to chapter 2 rather in verse 1. Having talked about this pure heart, in verse 1 he said of chapter 2, he said, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and all evil speaking, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So Peter here uses another, you might say metaphor, of feeding, in this case of a baby. The necessity of a baby to have milk, what is appropriate to it at that point in time, so that it can grow and develop. And no one has ever seen a baby that doesn't want to feed. Wakes up, needs another feed, needs more of it. It doesn't realize, I need this to grow. It's, you might say, a natural reaction on the part of a baby. Most selfish Children are horribly selfish. They wake up when they want to wake up, or when they wake up and they want to be changed when they want to be changed, they want to be fed when they want to be fed, and so on. But it's a wonderful example of a way in which we should be in terms of what it is that we're pursuing. We're being rescued from this world, this righteous act of our Heavenly Father in redeeming us from this way which he said is aimless conduct. We've redeemed from that. And he says, now I want you to feed on what produces this righteousness. And he talks about a baby. The context, of course, that Peter is conveying is that we need to change. There needs to be growth in our lives. And it needs to be evident in our lives as a result of the acceptance of of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the relationship with our Heavenly Father that is now available to us. And it's interesting because he then contrasts it in verse 1 with the fruits that should not be evident. Verse 1 describes those elements of human nature that are the absolute antithesis of righteousness. Combativeness. And so he talks there as I, laying aside all malice. All deceit. Hypocrisy. Envy and all evil speaking. Well, good. That's not part of righteousness. That's not part of a calling to which we've been called. That should not be evident as a result of hungering and thirsting after what it is our Father requires us to hunger and thirst after. Something else should be the case. You might contrast that with Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19 where it talks about the six things the eternal hates. Seven are abomination to Him. Like the things mentioned in First Peter chapter 2 verse 1. They are all disruptive they're all disjunctive to human relationships. They destroy human relationships. Rather than binding people together, rather than enabling people to be bound together to accomplish God's goals, they end up destroying those relationships in a very sad way. The effect of a right diet the eternal desires us to have leads to righteousness. And there's a great account of this given. You can cast your mind back to Mr. Smith's sermon of last week and he talked about one of those items that was in the Ark of the Covenant, the pot of manna. Well, Moses made a comment. Well, Moses was inspired to make a comment for us as well as the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy about that period of time. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. He said, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do it. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the eternal swore to give to your fathers. He desires to give this land to you. He wants you to inherit it, to populate the land, to enjoy the land. Verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the eternal your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. But he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That's why it has the name it has. Manna, what is it? But he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Scripture that we're very well aware of, because we recognize that Jesus Christ used that scripture against Satan when Satan tried to deceive Jesus Christ into making bread to satisfy his hunger Jesus Christ made it abundantly clear to Satan Mm -mm. wrong priorities man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and that godly nourishment leads to life We don't have manna to collect every day, but we certainly do have spiritual food that we need to ingest on a daily basis. What's the end result? Or what's the goal of the food we ingest on a daily basis? Is it just knowledge? If it's just for knowledge, then Paul tells us that knowledge puffs up. But love edifies Oh yes, there are cases where we need to have knowledge. And we work and we study to try and understand some section of scripture. It is so easy for that to become an end in itself. And then a person feels self-important because they know something about scripture that others don't know. And that's counterproductive. That is not producing the righteousness that our Father wants us to have. So, studying and ingesting God's Word just for knowledge is literally like taking a diet of fast food. It's going to do something to you that you don't ultimately want. Now over the past few months I've heard a number of occasions people, uh, the speakers rather, encouraging us to watch the telecast. So many of you will probably on a Sabbath or a Sunday watch the telecast. What's the goal? What's the ultimate goal in sitting down and watching the telecast? Is it to heighten your appreciation of the gospel being preached to this world? Is it something that you watch so that you can pray more fully about the gospel being preached? And about the need for the gospel to be preached? If that's the case, that's wonderful. Because you see, you're focusing on the need of other people. Mr. McNair mentioned in the announcements today about the Haram in in, uh, Nigeria killing these people in the uh, refugee camp. This world is full of evil. The world is full of instances that make our lives and our minds cry out for God's kingdom to come. We should be motivated by that. See that as being uppermost, most important thing. As Jesus Christ said in in the uh, model prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Very little of God's will is done on earth today. Very little of it is done. So we do these things. We read these articles and so forth. What's the purpose of it? Is it, well, I've got to do so much study today and I'll read this article and that will be my Bible study. Or is it done to help replenish the idea of righteousness within our lives rather interesting, a young person wrote just recently while TV and internet are considered amazing modern advances they make being a Christian a lot more difficult not only do they surround us with temptation but they distract us from what we really should be doing you see what's really demanded of us in terms of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 is that our life and our minds be highly focused. What is going to enhance godly righteousness within my life? What is going to enable me to focus on my father's character and what sort of being I ought to be? As a result of his calling. And how can I help with the preaching of the gospel to this world? How can I prepare myself for the establishment of the kingdom of God? Does that motivate our study each day? Or you might say our prayer each day as well. Because they go hand in glove, don't they? We can't necessarily separate them. We live in a world, as this young person said, we're surrounded with temptation. We're surrounded by all of these wonderful things that we can spend our times on. Or spend our time on excuse me, we don't have times. So easy to be distracted. But it's not just that it's easy to be distracted. It's also that the focus of the society in which we live is wrong. Our society encourages us to rely on human beings. In fact, this young person was talking about the way in which young people today rely on other human beings. It was an interesting observation on their part. But one of the reasons that millennials rely on other people is a result of the education system through which they have been taught. You see, our education system today is really very much a humanist system in which human beings are paramount. Where do you go to get answers to the problems you face? Your friends on Facebook, of course, because they're human beings. Sorry, you're not going to get the right answers there. You need to go to God's Word. Why are young people today perhaps less inclined to go to God's Word for answers? Because they've been educated in a society in which God doesn't exist. Humanism, ultimately speaking, exists in a closed world. There's just us and it. And there's nothing outside of it. There's nothing that can infiltrate from the outside to change things. Now you don't believe it. You know God exists. I know God exists. But do we allow that attitude of the world to influence us to the point where we don't see our Father as being the solution but really is needed for this world? It's a challenge for us today. One scripture I really love in terms of it. That describes today was written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. Where he said, O Eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Ah, Jeremiah understood something which is forgotten today unless you're committed to God's way of life. You and I don't know the right way to walk. We don't know the right solutions to the problems of beset human beings. The eternal does. And so Jeremiah said, Oh, eternal... I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not something that I was born with. I may have been taught some of it by my father who was in the church, for which I'm very grateful. And I'm here today because of that. I'm very grateful for that. It is not something that a little child comes into this world and naturally expects. But the education system says, yes, you do. The eternal says, no, you don't. And I win at the end of the day. And so Jeremiah, realizing that he lived in a very open world in which the eternal God could intervene in his life at any moment and instruct him and correct him, he said in verse 24, he said, oh, eternal, correct me but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So one thing that Jeremiah had very much in his favor was that he had a very clear understanding of who and what God was. He understood the power of God, and he understood the power of that being to intervene in the affairs of humanity any time he so desired. And he desired, he prayed, correct me, not in anger, because I'm just dust. And it's very easy for me to go back to dust again. Solomon talked about the same situation. Because while humanism did not exist back during those periods of time, Humanity does have this innate characteristic of leaving God out of a picture. And so Solomon told us in chapter 3 and verses 3 through 7. He said, "Let let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. These godly qualities, don't let them forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So internalize them. Make themselves part of you. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So when Luke, Luke chapter 2, talks about Jesus Christ growing up after he had been in Jerusalem at the age of 12, talks about him growing in favor with God and man. This is where he was referencing This was the way of Christ, a way of life that Jesus Christ himself lived as an example for us. And so he said in verse 5, Trust in me, eternal, with all your heart, and don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the eternal, and depart from evil. That's part of being, seeking the righteousness of God. The fear of the eternal that Dr. Meredith speaks about so frequently. So essential. Because we see ourselves in our right juxtaposition to the eternal God and the Father. We are nothing. They are everything. And we need to appreciate that in a very great way interesting test for us to consider in terms of righteousness. As to whether righteousness is being produced in our lives. And that is what happens during a time of hardship. It's very easy to claim that you're righteous when everything is going swimmingly. And beautifully. But what about in a time of hardship? The Eternal does allow times of hardship to come upon us sickness, lost jobs, bereavement, all of these things come. These are part, you might say, of the cycle of life. We face them on a continuous basis. Amongst ourselves and our friends and so forth within the congregation. Jeremiah chapter 17 is rather interesting from this point of view. Because Jeremiah spoke to this same aspect in chapter 17. I'd like you to pick it up in verse 5. We've talked about some of these other scriptures at other times. But let's not spend time on those today. Let's focus on this particular area of verse five through seven. Thus saith the Eternal Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the eternal. He's accursed as a person who relies on humanism, so to speak, as an ideal. that's going to produce all sorts of problems for you. He said, this is what it's like. He is like a shrub in the desert and will not see when good comes. It's dry. And it's all limp. And all the moisture has gone out of it. And when the rain or a bit of uh, dew comes, there's nothing left to rejuvenate is dead he said he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land salt's not good for the land because you can't grow produce it's destructive to the land verse 7 though provides us with the contrast a wonderful contrast because he said, blessed is the man who trusts in the eternal, whose trust is in the eternal. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. He's going to be unchanged. The summer comes. The dry season comes, as the case may be. But because they're connected to a life source, They weather it. It doesn't affect them. For its leaves remain green. And is not anxious anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. You see the person who trusts in the eternal. The person who is seeking for righteousness. Continues to bear fruit at all times. The hard times and the good times. Let me give you an example of it. During the 90s, I guess 93, 94, thereabouts, computers, of course, have become fairly commonplace, especially in the United States. And someone in the ministry of Worldwide set up an internet chat-type facility. Nobody knew who anybody was, because they knew if you ever got caught, you'd be fired instantaneously. But they set up this internet facility for ministers to compare notes and, you might say, encourage one another, etc., etc. It was called Melnet. And I think the, the use of Mel M-A-L, was based on Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, how good it is for people to communicate about these things and how they're going to be the jewels in God's crown when he sets up his kingdom. And so I think there was a a really good intention in in setting this up and enabling a, a vehicle for communication amongst the ministry in terms of that very difficult period of time. But at times, the mal may well have been or would have been better translated in the French language. Because those of you who know French realize that M-A-L means ill or sick. Because at times it was a very sick place. Basically because of the fruits that were being evidenced in some of the ministry's lives. It was a very, very sad period of time. It was, you might say, a very much a dry time. For everybody. It was, as Jeremiah says here, this time of parchness for the ministry. And some of them did not necessarily bring forth good fruits during that period of time. And the way in which they spoke and the language they used against other people revealed anger, hostility, bitterness, and things of that nature rather than the Spirit of God. So we all go through it. We all experience it at various periods of time. What comes out? What comes out in those hard times? Is it godly? Then that's righteousness. That's the righteousness that Jesus Christ was commending us to pursue, to hunger and thirst after. So at times we look at the hard times and we ask what fruits are being produced? Are any fruits being produced? If no fruits are being produced then the tree would be cut down. No need for it to encumber the ground. And likewise if ill fruit, bad fruit is being produced. The eternal won't allow it to continue. I had to help a person one time with a, a difficulty they had created and as I was discussing the situation with the individual and how best to handle the situation and help them, I suggested that they needed wisdom to take care of a problem and the person sort of bowled me over by his response, he said I don't have any wisdom oh Well, maybe that was why the problem existed in the first place. But the problem was not going to be solved by not having wisdom. And so I recommended, I asked him to read one section of scripture. James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. said, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is coupled with meekness. Already discussed that in terms of the Beatitudes. Then he contrasts it in verse 14. But if any have bitter envy and self seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, this wisdom, Quote, unquote, wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But, this is the lovely part, isn't it? But, in contrast to that, the wisdom that is from above is first pure Peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is godly wisdom. The wisdom that comes from our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But Notice verse 18. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We don't have time to talk today about peace, but he gives us a focus because one of the other comments that Jesus Christ made in the Beatitude of best blessed over peacemakers righteousness and peacemaking go together, seeking God's will. No, it's not suggesting that we make peace with the devil. We're not involved in making any pacts with the devil in any way whatsoever. But we need to understand peace as well. Another time. So we need to ask ourselves, what does our spiritual diet do for our lives? Does it produce the righteousness that is going to produce fruits even in the hardest times? Or is it just for fair weather sailing? Can it withstand those droughts that can come along? What fruit does it provide? Does it produce the fruit that our Father desires? Or does our diet lead to us being malnourished or underfed or in some cases like the guy who took his McDonald's diet literally poisoned sad situation so we have this consideration let's return to Jesus Christ's comments on the Sermon on the Mount Because he says more about this hungering and thirsting after righteousness in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. He said, No man can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And what does he say? Verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you put on. He said, isn't that not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Isn't this the reality of the calling that we've been called to? It's not about the physical things that this world is so concerned about. He talks about how we shouldn't be anxious. He talks about the way in which the Eternal takes care, His Father takes care of the, the birds and the, the uh, flowers, the lilies of the field, he goes through these various examples. Then in verse 31 he said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. That's the way of this world. The focus of this world. He said, Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows what we need, He knows what's appropriate to us. But He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You won't lack for anything. But the righteousness of the kingdom of God has got to be the focus. Is my character being developed in the character of my heavenly father? Is my concern for the people of this world motivated by the same concern as my heavenly father? Interesting to stop and consider. It's God's will that all come to repentance and live and it's very easy to say well I'll have to wait till the second resurrection yes some people will a lot of people who have gone already who have going to will have to wait for the second resurrection but how concerned are we about those who are still alive how dedicated are we to it The Father wants us to be God-centered. Paul in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 28 said, The eternal will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. He will finish the work and cut it short on righteousness. Ah, his work is a work of Righteousness. You and I have been invited to have a part in a work of righteousness. So we're told to hunger and thirst after that righteousness. To make that part of our lives. And then he concludes with another prophecy from Isaiah in verse 28. Because the eternal will make a short work upon the earth. I'd like you to consider though First John chapter 3. Because we referenced this a little earlier on. It sort of brings the aspect of righteousness in a full circle. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. John inspired to record for us little children. Let no one deceive you. John would probably be blown away today if he could understand the means of deception that exist in this world in terms of getting people away from the focus of God in terms of getting them focused on the other ideas about God that exist within this world he said let no one deceive you how will you relate to the idea of the internet and television, and all of the things that go on, that are paraded before our eyes, that we can spend time on if we wish. He concludes that thought. He said, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. In other words, the challenge is not just for us to Hunger and thirst after righteousness, but to practice righteousness, to make that the focus of our lives, so that we can be right with our Father and with His Son, and we can be right with one another. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul tells us how this can happen in terms of our lives talks about some of the good food that we can ingest to bring about that righteousness. We're in verse 16, he said, Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Ah, the Word of God has got to be part of our thinking process. It's got to be something against which we compare And we evaluate all of the decisions that come our way. As he told the Corinthians, bring every thought into captivity to the will of God. And so it's got to to reside in us, dwell in us richly, in such a way in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to be eternal. Alright, so the relationship we have with the word of God, or the word of Christ, as it's referred to here, produces a result between one another. A good result that uh, Mr. Ames mentioned is evident within the congregation here, for which we are very grateful and very, very appreciative. Verse 17, he said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's an absolute focus. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what food do we ingest? And what's the result of it being ingested? I would say from the time we spent here in Charlotte, there's a good amount of righteousness being reflected and that is good and that is to be honor and the glory of jesus christ